Hi, I'm Hallie Larson. And I'm Chris Cornell. Not that one, but the cool one. <laughs> That's right, the one who's still alive. And I, yes. <laughs> I'm Jim Stormdancer, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. And thank goodness, because topics need discussing. They're ripe and ready. Hallie, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, hold on. Let me get over like being just like I just got hit by the like. What if what if Chris dies between now and when the episode is released? I'm gonna be so sad listening to him talk about being the one who's still alive. Wow. Um, Even worse, it will be super awkward. Yeah, it's gonna be so awkward and sad. Both of those things. All right, Chris. I'm gonna need you to record your own obituary and send it to me just in case. I'm Chris Cornell, and I guess this one's dead too. For now. Okay. That could be your plug, there. Now, too. now you can use that if the unthinkable happens. <laughs> Good. I'm glad we've thought out and planned the unthinkable. But yes, uh, I am recording an episode of the Doctor Who Rewatch podcast, The Watch of Fallen Over Asylum, as a guest, I think, later this weekend, uh, which should be out by the time this comes out. Uh, you can find that, uh, Watch Thon of Rassilon, by using your podcatcher of choice, or... Uh, following their Twitter at WatchYourRass. They're two R's and an ass. It's like Watch Your Ass, but with an extra R in there. Anyway, on the Twitter. Also, I am starting, uh, hopefully, uh, a new podcast project that I can actually talk about now um, that should have at least an intro episode out either by the time this episode is released or shortly thereafter of a podcast that we are currently calling house rules where we are looking at games that sort of help people form their identities and talking to them about that and we're focusing on uh, the card game cribbage and card games at the moment but we're hoping to expand it neat oh thank you uh you can find that at um house rules cast on the twitter which is currently a placeholder that hopefully will have some links in it Great. by the time you look at it now magically uh hopefully chris cornell is still alive Hopefully. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be giving that one a listen. I suspect I will be. And Chris, uh, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I'm Chris Cornell, as has been established, the cool one. And I'm a programmer, game designer, general indie gadfly, and I don't really have a whole lot to plug, so I'm just going to pick random items in my house and plug them. Oh, okay. Copag 310 playing cards. They're just really good playing cards, especially if they have the B7 True Linen Finish, which is the slimline version, which is slimmer than the thicker ones they used to use. Make them nice and springy. Copag. For playing. With cards. I, I have to admit, it never occurred to me that one deck of or like one brand of playing cards would be better than another brand of playing cards. Oh, my word. I could... Like, you want a topic, I could talk about playing card finishes. Oh my, no, that'd be There's great. a surprising amount of difference I am, between them. I am so down. To, in fact, like, we've got a topic for you that's coming right up. We could we could not do that one. We could do playing card finishes instead. Or you, you want to do this? Because I'm ready. All right. All right, we're doing this. All right. Now, a little bit of backstory here. Every so often, I decide it's time to take up a new hobby. And the new hobby that I took up about five years ago was it would be fun to get into close-up magic. Right, yes. And a lot of close-up magic involves card tricks. It turns out I like card tricks a lot. They're way more fun than, say, coin tricks, at least for me, because coin tricks, it feels like there are a lot fewer moves, and they're all, like, 
they're what they call knuckle busters. They take a lot of practice, and they can be kind of hard on your hands, like the knuckle buster is not just a euphemism for difficulty, but anyway, uh, I just didn't find them as much fun. And also, to put it bluntly, card magic is easier. It takes less effort to learn some slights that you can go and get to the fun part, where you're practicing in front of a mirror and literally fooling yourself, which is a really fun feeling and makes you want to practice more, which you know, makes this nice little feedback loop that ends up with you learning a new skill. Yay, feedback loops that end up with you learning new skills. Yeah. Positive feedback loops are great. Positive feedback loops are great. I I spend a lot of time, like, trying to set up situations where I can, like... I used to call it tricking myself into doing something that was good for me, but I realize now it's really just kind of, like... It's almost more like curling, like the sport, not the just thing that noodles do. Um... (laughs) Where, you know, like, they slide the big rock down the ice, and the people go and, like, brush the path with those little brooms to try to make it nice and smooth. Like, it's kind of like I'm doing that for myself. I'm just, I know the physics of how I'm going to act and interact with things, so if I do a little bit of prep work, I know that my momentum will carry me in certain directions, and I can try to harness that, so... That's how we avoid staying up uh, on all-nighters doing work. I'm referencing something we talked about before the pod, which is probably a bad idea. (laughs) But that's totally true. Anyway, so hobbies. Doing things fun. I tend to favor hobbies where the the barrier for entry for the equipment, as it were, is very, very cheap. And I like this for a couple of reasons. One of them is it makes it really easy to justify for myself that initial jump of saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I guess I need these things. It's way easier to decide, okay, I'm going to learn card magic. Okay, I need a deck of cards. Then it is to say, okay, I'm going to finally learn how to play the violin. Guess I need a violin now. I don't actually know how much violins cost. I suspect you can find some reasonably priced ones, but... A good deck of playing cards is actually like three bucks, two fifty if you buy them in bulk. So yeah, violins are more expensive than that. I don't think violins that. are quite to that state. The other cool thing about hobbies with cheap, cheap entry costs, cheap materials, is you can afford to experiment a lot more cheaply. Like I saw this also when I decided it was time to learn the penny whistle, which was a previous hobby. Penny whistles and decks of cards are super cheap. Like perfectly usable penny whistle is like seven dollars or something. One could, if one were so inclined, buy, like, six different ones from six different companies and then try them all as sort of a comparative, like, okay, so which one do I, which one feels best? Is there a noticeable difference between these? And so on. Penny whistles, by the way, there totally is. And uh, as a slight side topic, if you ever decide to get into penny whistling, I highly recommend going for a Clark Sweet Tone with a conical bore which means that the actual instrument is a cone shape instead of a perfect cylinder because it makes it way easier to get into the upper octave and it's more in tune when you do. That's, my, that's I guess, another plug. Congratulations, Clark. You got <laughs> free plug out of me. Anyway, I did the same with cards and started noticing that a whole bunch of them have very different finishes on them. There's a couple of big players that have a bunch of finishes and... Then, like, a bunch of little houses that do, like, their own publishing that have weird, like, variations, some of which are very similar, some of which are just totally different. So, for example, the elephant in the room, in cards, is not, in fact, Elephant Playing Card Company, which I just realized as I was saying that is totally a thing, and so it makes a nice lead-in. <laughs> the elephant is U.S. Playing Card Company, which is 
huge USPCC, as it's called by those in the know, produces like a gazillion cards. And I think they actually recently bought Theory 11, five or ten years ago or something, who before that was kind of positioning themselves as like luxury cards, and they kind of got bought by U.S. playing card company, who made like a couple of different card stocks, and they changed a little bit, they're still good. Anyway, long story short, U.S. playing card company makes a bunch of cards, and their basic bicycle deck is kind of the gold standard for being cheap and nice. They're pretty good, they're, in, they're super inexpensive, they're ubiquitous, and they handle pretty well. Yeah, I think the reason that I it never occurred to me that other kinds of playing cards would be nicer is that I don't think I've ever even seen non-bicycle playing cards. Right? Like, I don't know, about five or seven or so years ago, like, it's when you started getting, like, custom playing cards, or at least, like, interesting playing cards. Like, before everything, which is like, oh, look, it's the bicycle back, or the whatever, like, the standard playing card backs. And then, like, luxury decks started becoming a thing. I think there were a couple of, of successful Kickstarters, and suddenly, like, it kind of exploded, and, like, now there's decks with all sorts of things. Like, Theory 11, which I mentioned before, which basically their brand is luxury decks, has just started making decks for, like, all sorts of weird stuff. Like, things that I think they made decks for in the past couple of years include, like, Star Wars, The Beatles... Harry Potter, Marvel superheroes, and then like a bunch of uh, historic hotels and stuff. That's the problem, really of course, cool. is that, you know, also, if you want that, you're probably going to be paying more like $10 a deck, which is a lot less fun when you're practicing and ruining decks and realizing that you're ruining a $10 nice deck rather than like a cheap 250 deck you bought at Walgreens. That makes sense. Do you Do you ruin decks a lot when you're doing close-up magic? Uh, when I'm practicing, I go through them reasonably fast. Actually, my problem is that I refuse to throw them out for too long, and they get all manky and weird. <laughs> um, and it really actually changes how the cards... So one of the things I did really early on was I, I saw a YouTube video of someone, a moderately famous magician YouTuber named Chris Ramsey, doing a really cool card slide that I thought was really neat. I found out way later that it was actually called Bow to Stern, and he taught it on his channel. And even though I knew it was, like, leagues beyond me, I figured I wanted to give it a try. Way later, this year, I finally tracked down the book. The book that it was in finally got back in print, and I got to read in the book and correct several mistakes that I'd picked up in trying to learn it from YouTube. But the point of me bringing it up is that it actually doesn't really work well with old decks at all. Mm. And, of course, I'd just been continuing to practice with a deck that I had in my pocket for, like, a month that was all, like, dog-eared and the cards didn't quite lie flat and and all these things, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get this move to work. And finally, for completely unrelated reasons, I, like, decided it was time to open up a new deck, and suddenly the move started working, and I'm like, what the... Oh, seriously? Mm. I spent, like, a week, like, being disappointed about not being able to do this cool thing. Turned out the problem wasn't just me. There was probably some me problem in there, too, but the problem was also just, like, card handling. Right. Anyway, I don't want to completely suck up all of our time with card finishes, so I just want to give a quick overview of kind of the main ones that I think are interesting and why. The big thing about all the finishes is they have some texture to them, which the purpose of it is basically to reduce the surface area between cards when they're laying on top of each other, so they can move past each other more. Like, U.S. Playing Card Company has what they call their air cushion finish, 
If you look at a, a playing card, you'll see it has like kind of a regular crosshatch pattern on it, making a bunch of little square dimples all over it. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. They make little air pockets, so the cards slide over each other nicely and don't stick together. This is in stark contrast, by the way, to most of the cards you'll find in board games, which very frequently have the super glossy finish, Ooh, or maybe uh -huh. a matte finish, and are really hard to get to do anything with because they they stick together. Like You can't do nice spreads or fans or a lot of slights that require you to like move cards in a predictable way when you on demand, right? And where you don't want them clumping. So anyway, that's the U.S. Playing Card Company. They have a couple of different variations on what the actual inside of the card is like. They have, like, the regular, they have, like, a crushed stock where they, like, take the card stock and, like, crushed up in advance so that when they make the deck, you don't have to spend as much time breaking it in. Because new cards can actually be kind of stiff till you've done a bunch of stuff with them. Bunch of, a bunch of shuffles or something, or card springs. So they're kind of the big one. Probably the second biggest is a company called Cartamundi that decided about five years ago that they were going to get into the professional magician cardistry market. Cardistry, Ooh. by the way, is a really cool kind of weird side art that came out of card tricks, where basically, like, they don't even try and do tricks, they just do crazy, almost juggling of just weird feats with cards where... You know, a card fan can be very beautiful, and so if you have a bunch of cards that have a neat pattern on the back, you can make really neat patterns out of them, and there's some insanely talented people out there that make me feel entirely inadequate in my card handling, but shrug. That's true of basically any human endeavor when you look at good people on the internet, so I try not to let it get... This is super true. <laughs> Looks like Cardamindi bought the U.S. playing card company in 2019, Wikipedia tells me. That sounds right. I remembered one of them bought the other, and I was going to try to avoid mentioning it because I couldn't actually remember which way the acquisition went. That's okay. I looked it up on the interweb because <laughs> I got super nice. curious. Um, my my co-host for the podcast I was plugging has a whole collection of cards, not for close-up magic, but because they enjoy collecting cards and cool. card gamey stuff. So this is deeply interesting. Oh, cool. I'm glad I'm not completely boring everyone then. No, not at all. This is this is wicked cool. Okay, well, I the interesting thing about Cardamundi cards is they have a finish that's super different from the bicycle one. Like, the bicycle one has this very regular little grid of things. And Cardamundi came up with this thing they call the true linen finish. It's designed to look like the card is made out of linen. So it's still got, like, a bunch of perpendicular lines, but they're much more irregular in both their thickness and their like positioning and it makes a very nice finish but the real thing that i like about the cartamundi stuff is just they're very durable and they're very springy and somehow the springiness is very satisfying i like to have at least a deck or two around for fidgeting with mm -hmm. and by fidgeting i mean just practicing whatever slight of the slight of the day is right and whenever i open up a new cartamundi deck it just like I have a day of like, oh yeah, I have a new deck here. This is nice. <laughs> They've also been helped by uh, a company called Illusionist that sells magic supplies, also has super heavily backed uh, Cartamundi, and so there's a bunch of nice magic decks that you can get with interesting patterns. There's a couple of other weird little places that do cards, and I'll mention a few of those. There's a company called Expert Playing Card Company, and I still can't quite figure them out. They have... 
their main decks that they sell are feel like they have the same finish as everything else, but the cards are super, super stiff, and I actually kind of dislike them. I can't get them to do... They're, they're hard to shuffle. They're hard to bend. And so I'd normally like to sort of be, okay, well, they're not for me. But somewhere along the lines, I got some of their other cards that have some finish that I still don't know what it's called, but they're called Jet Setter Playing Cards, and they have this really smooth, almost waxy feel to them that's very appealing, and I only have, like, three decks that have that, so I don't actually use those very much because I kind of like them and don't feel like trying to track down more. Uh, there's a company called Elephant, which I mentioned briefly before, which they have really wild decks, like, just in terms of deck design, both the front and the back of the deck has the interesting patterns on the back, and then they do crazy decorations on the face cards, like everything's made of sunbursts and rainbows, or everything's all, like, covered in circuits and is supposed to look high-tech and cyber, or I've got one here that all the cards are kind of drawn in this Van Gogh-ish Starry Night kind of motif. They're really neat. They're just... They're not quite as bad as the expert playing card ones, but they're also super stiff and really hard to work with, so I don't use them as much. Also, they tend to like cards that have black faces and black borders, which is striking and interesting, but also means that if you use them for very long, then the black starts giving out and you get kind of white flex where inner card shows through. And like the that crease. Looks weird. Yeah, it just doesn't really work well. And then last, but certainly not least, is this weird... I'm still not sure actually who published the disease. I should look them up, but it's they're called Phoenix Playing Cards. They're made by some company in Germany. And they look a lot like the bicycle ones, but they feel very nice. They were deliberately designed for magicians, and one thing they're very good at, better than any other deck that I know of, really, is what's called a Faro Shuffle. It's spelled F-A-R-O, and it's named after some obscure card game, but it's basically a perfect shuffle, like where you cut the deck perfectly in halves and shuffle it in such a way that the cards are perfectly interleaved between the halves. And there's a bunch of neat mathematical properties if you can do this reliably. And there's a bunch of neat magic tricks if you can do this reliably that can be really hard to figure out because it's a ridiculous amount of control over exactly where everything goes. And even though it looks like you're shuffling, you actually know exactly where every card is after you do it. Right. But anyway, it's kind of hard to do. I, I can do it reasonably well after spending a couple of months focusing on it and then like a couple of more months practicing periodically but somehow those phoenix playing cards are really really nice for it like huh. normally w one last thing and then I'll, I'll get off of my playing card kick um the, the other thing that matters in playing cards is how they are cut uh because you know they, they start as a big sheet and then this big kind of cookie cutter like thing comes down and cuts out the individual cards and of course you can imagine this doesn't actually leave like a perfect, it's not like a laser, a magical laser beam or something. It doesn't leave a perfect edge. On the edge that it's pushing down, it kind of has a rounded edge and then cuts through the bottom, which has a much cleaner edge. And which way a deck is cut actually affects which way it's easier to do a pharaoh shuffle on. <laughs> because doing a pharaoh shuffle involves kind of mushing the edges together and doing, forcing them to behave in a hopefully predictable way. And somehow they're doing something with the Phoenix decks that makes them way easier to Pharaoh shuffle than anything else I found, and I don't understand what. Anyway, thank you for coming to my TED Talk on cards. You can now have your words in edgewise. Sorry for the long monologue. <laughs> it was no, fascinating. This is, no, this is great stuff.
I don't know if I have anything to say about it. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like this is a purely like I just absorb this content and give nothing back <laughs> is where I am. I mean, that's fine. I recognize this is a very niche interest, and there are some people online that are like even more super into this than like it sounds like I know a lot about this, and I know, certainly know more than average, but. Oh, there's like this guy named Enver's Game Reviewer who posts on Board Game Geek all the time and has written up like extensive breakdowns of all the finishes and sub finishes, and he gets into like, well, there's this stock that has quote the linoid finish, but that's really just another name for the air cushion finish. Except it used to be they'd apply the plastic coat twice, but now they don't anymore, and now it's just a branding thing. And <laughs> there's a whole rabbit hole here that this is kind of yeah teetering the- on the edge of. The sort of the actual manufacturing history of playing cards is something I'm super fascinated by. <laughs> well, there's a lot of it, so... Good. Yeah, no, the history of cards is crazy, like, and goes back to, like, money in China. It's, yeah. In terms I... of interesting playing card history, I do want to bring up the the bicycle playing card war effort. Please. Where... Go on. Okay, I need to take a step back for a moment and talk a little bit about how playing cards are actually made. It looks like it's a single piece of paper, but what it actually is, is is two pieces of paper, which are the the surfaces, surrounding a stiff cardboard core, which is what gives it the the spring, and then the whole thing is sealed with like a plastic finish or or some kind of finish, usually a light plastic finish. So during World War II, Bicycle and the army teamed up and made a bunch of decks, very few of which have survived, unfortunately, where if you split the cards open to get at the inner the inner card and then assembled the cardboard centers, you had a map of Germany, huh. which they included, and they included these decks in, like, soldier standard-issue supplies right? to make sure that anyone who was captured would have at least a chance of having a secret map with them. That's cool. This is a real thing that happened. Not many survived, but it's kind of, it's one of those ideas that tickles my fancy of, like, romanticized spy intrigue. You peel these two sides of the card apart and find the hidden message, like a fortune cookie. Pretty much. I think, I think I've heard that they were, I don't know if this was a deliberate thing for that deck, or just normal for cards at the time, but if you soak them in water or possibly boiled them then they would tend to separate okay and this made it easier to extract the hidden information right i definitely this definitely makes me want to like just like they gotta still be doing that just for fun right like leave little hidden messages inside <laughs> of the cards like it would be a waste if they could do it if they didn't you know now that you mention it yeah okay well, what what card manufacturer would like cards against humanity probably does something like this it <laughs> seems like their vibe one of the things that has resulted in the boom of weird decks, like, man, if you go and look on Kickstarter, there are a gazillion people trying to get people to back their crazy deck ideas. Right. It's from basic to super elaborate to social messages to just, I drew a whole bunch of really intricate pictures of finches and now I want to have them on cards. Yeah. But I've never seen one that said, like, and if you, and if you separate them, they have a secret message on the backs or something. Yeah, yeah, well, it's not a secret if they tell you. Is this Frog Fractions 3? I mean, I was about to say, this would be like a really good idea for an ARG. Yeah, I'm super into it. I'm, I'm, my, my ARG life is over. Somebody else do this. Yeah. Uh, are we ready for another topic? I think so. 
Yes. I mean, this topic will stay with me forever, but yes. <laughs> yes. And the <laughs> listeners. They can fast forward. That's right. We lack that luxury. <laughs> That's right. Hallie, your topic is, if the words religion and faith didn't exist, how would we talk about them? So I was thinking about this this morning uh, when I was talking to a friend of mine from college about how like tracking in schools is bad education practice, like separating people into separate like tracks. Uh Along which, like, you know, these people take this track because it ends up separating people into groups and removing educational opportunities for people. And that was seen to be bad educational practice and I think was, in fact, like, outlawed in places. Uh, I would need to do a little more research for this. I was just talking about it off the dome, but... I swear I'll talk about religion in a second. Uh, What this ended up doing is meaning that, like, so often people will reinvent tracking uh, and be like, hey, this seems like a good idea. But, like, they just won't use the word for it because the word is frowned upon. And it got me to thinking of, like, one of the biggest reasons that I am interested in religion and the study of religion is because, like, it feels like something that comes from how people are. And, like, it, it arises from the way we talk about things. And if we didn't have that word to point to it, uh, would it still be around? How would we talk about it? So the topic is, yeah, if the word religion and faith didn't exist, how would we talk about them? Imagine that you drive through a town, there's a big, like, building in there that people go to on a specific day of the week, and then they come out of it. We don't have a word for what that kind of activity is. It's just an activity that happens like how would we talk about it how would we contextualize that? yeah so if if we got to the point like we're in modern society and churches are everywhere but we still don't have a word for them i feel like at that point it's like there's some phenomenon that's making sure we continue to not have a word for this this sounds like a twilight zone episode or maybe a star trek tng planet <laughs> right right uh so i would worry about that sure but gonna just give it a go here. We could call it blorp. We could yeah, I was gonna blorp. say we could just talk about it as deligion and daith. <laughs> yeah, we could. We could. could. Could I take a step back though? I think I want to ask you a question about tracking. Oh sure. Is it really so bad all the time? And I ask that extremely loaded question because I'm thinking about it in the context of things like gifted and talented programs. I know it's not always. I don't know popular to talk about but different students do have different educational needs yes so it seems like it makes sense to group the students like in the in the pursuit of making sure that everybody gets what they need it seems like tracking is almost inevitable and what there are a couple problems that arise one there's not a way to do it that isn't ableist and racist basically it's like, yes, you can, uh, because as soon as you decide a student is gifted and talented and put them on that track, like, the students who are not in that no longer have access to those opportunities. But yeah, you have to, like, every student has different educational needs, and you need to be able to accommodate those and work with those, and students should get access to specific specific educational opportunities doing it. Like, like the issue there becomes an issue of, more broadly, like, is it ethical to standardize education and people in any way really when you start talking about it that way yeah because it seems like you're kind of juggling around you're basically just juggling around opportunities like you're making sure for example that all students have the opportunity to learn exactly the same thing and benefit from the opportunity to teach to teach and learn from their classmates but on the flip side it means that you're denying some students the opportunity 
to learn new things after they've mastered the things they've already learned, or to basically go as fast as they're able to. And so I'm not sure which one's better. I mean, I obviously have some bias, because a lot of my... I benefited greatly from getting to enroll in, like, some college oh, absolutely. classes uh, early. And that's, like, that... Yeah, and that's more that's more ad hoc. That's enrolling in specific courses, right? That's... And, and I'm not necessarily talking about, like... In colleges, you... There are majors, and that's, like, a concentration and a focus. There's not really... There can be accelerated programs, that's another thing. But, like, again, the issue becomes, like, what happens to the kids who, like, don't have a great home life and do not get those opportunities to begin with and having worked in a classroom and teaching kids like i care a lot more about making sure that people have access to educational opportunities i'm always going to work with kids to help them get more content when they go but in general educational theory has moved more towards like in a classroom it is the work of a teacher to differentiate with the students and make sure that you are accommodating different students' educational needs, including educational needs to, like, have access to stuff and go farther. But, like, by separating into, like, two classes, quite literally, of people of, like, these are the smart kids and these are the not-so-smart kids, that ends up creating a lot of, like, social problems and... Uh, trauma for especially the ones that you don't call that you end up saying these are the not so smart kids well it obviously wouldn't <laughs> obviously describing them as such would not be what you should ever do but it does bring up the question of like you know if you have a bunch of students who are reading at a fifth grade level and a bunch of students who are reading at a third grade level how much sense does it make to try to teach them all in the same class at that point oh not a lot for example uh tracking specifically is when it's like a whole class and it's permanent, not like for a single class. Not for like, ah, yeah, that's the difference. It's not like saying, oh, yeah, take this class because you're good at this. It's like making making a longer term decision about someone's like entire educational we career. We decided in first that, grade that you're one of the slow kids. So yeah, exactly. To... That's that's more the phenomenon we're talking about, if that helps. Yeah, absolutely. I Giving am united people... with you in distaste for that. Thing. Yes, yes. Sometimes, like, the things that seem good can accidentally turn into that, but that's a whole Well, sometimes other the things discussion. that seem yeah. good can be bad. That's, that's actually why I wanted to talk about it, was I was thinking, well, here's a thing that I've thought was good, but if there's ways that it can be bad, I... I want to hear about them. Yeah, I want to talk about it with Hallie. It's uh, it's mostly that it's uh, that it that it can unintentionally create effective situations where it's a long term, large scale, permanent thing, rather than like uh, because like all of a sudden, oh well, you don't have the prerequisites for, and it ends up being used either unintentionally or intentionally to keep people from having access to opportunities based on very real things that should not be used for that, like, you know, socioeconomic status or or race or, like... Let's talk about faith. <laughs> a thing that everybody agrees about. <laughs> so actually, I'm kind of glad you brought this up. I had a thought a while ago, which is, I, I think is kind of similar. I was thinking about people requesting religious exemptions to things. In the case where I was thinking about it, of course, naturally it was COVID vaccines, but it got me thinking about religious exemptions anyway, kind of as a topic. And I think this is kind of tangential to what you're you're thinking about, because I was thinking, you know, if we didn't have the concept of a religion, how would we explain this? Like, it's basically somebody saying, I know these are the rules, and I want to participate in the group that sets the rules, but I also really don't want to follow this rule because I just feel really strongly that I don't like it. 
Yeah, And right. that's an interesting position to take when you strip it away of the, like, as a society, you've kind of made like a, I'll, I'll, I'll almost call it like a peace treaty, where we agree, like, okay, so, you know, we have these deep-seated beliefs, we don't all agree on them, but we'll just agree that we're going to afford a certain amount of common respect, hopefully, to uh, the things that the people believe, and accept that even if we don't believe them ourselves, we understand that this is something that is extremely important and meaningful to the other person and treat it with the appropriate amount of respect. And if you take away all of that, I guess, background diplomacy and just think of it straight up as like, so what exactly is a religious exemption? It's it's asking to be exempt from the rules because you don't like the rules. Mm-hmm. feels weird and interesting. I think it's a really interesting fact that they exist at all. Like, I was kind of surprised when I discovered that there were religious exemptions for things like... I mean, vaccines are, are an interesting issue because that's one where it actually is a public safety issue. People feel... Like, when people weigh it against their personal beliefs, they're like, no, I think my personal beliefs are, are stronger here. And I'm not... You can probably guess that I might have opinions on that, but I don't want to dwell on that part. I want to dwell on just the interesting part of... I don't know. Of how yeah. we interact with that as a society, I guess. Yeah, this is exactly the sort of reason I'm... I'm sort of asking this question. Like, I've been doing a lot of moderating of, like, teen forums, and, like, and just a lot of studying of the formation of religions when I was in college, and the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, religions are fandoms that have been around for a really long time. And I speak specifically (laughs) about, like, religions in, like, the Western conception of them, but you have, like, this fandom of a series of texts, and those series of texts get, like, a specific candom. Like, even the words fanatic, like, even the word fan comes from a sense of uh, zealousness associated with religious fervor. It's an identity tied usually to some sort of sacred text or practice, usually some sort of, like, deep meaning investment in a thing that, like, you believe in strongly. Are you going to give me some great new, like, factoid about the etymology of fan and fandom because if so i am behind this 150 percent. i mean it just comes from fanatic like which is as in like a religious fanatic like i don't know if there's any great great etymology i never there. made that connection i feel a little bit silly now no it's uh you're fine it's so nope silly all right fine <laughs> fine you do you you be silly anyway uh <laughs> um, <laughs> i got lost in the wah 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 it was pretty silly <laughs> You were talking about how when things are older, then we believe in them more strongly. Well, they just have, like, more examples that you can point to. There's a larger body of work of, like, see, this thing has been around this longer, and there's more, like, stories and more interactions and more opportunity for tradition to exist. Right. Which not to say that, that meaning isn't valuable in some circumstances or to some people. You know, my own religious tradition is steeped in, like, the fandom of someone who is very against like elevating individuals above their own individual experience so you get these like weird that's ironic right exactly this is what i'm saying you get these so like it's almost impossible to avoid and like even if you look at christianity a lot of the texts are like "Eh, maybe we shouldn't have all this canon and yet (laughs) (laughs) and yet and yet so like how do we avoid the pitfalls of it without accidentally recreating it yeah but like so let's say let's say we start driving by the blorp all the time and all the people go into the blorp and blorp starts to get a connotation like what connotations does blorp get 
if we don't already have that word with its, like, enshrining in our legal code. Are you suggesting that, like, we figure out how to create the good version of Blorp with no frame of reference for how Blorp can be bad? No, I'm certainly not suggesting Uh-oh. that. I suspect that uh, those are sort of two separate questions. I suspect okay. we would absolutely okay. recreate Blorp as a bad thing. But, like, also, well, Blorp definitely shouldn't be a religion. <laughs> it should be a Blorp. <laughs> right. What even is a religion? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. So it's interesting that I when I when I conceive of what religion is, if I were to try to define it, I would define it in opposition to to science. Like if, if science is a field of study where you make a hypothesis and you test it and you stop believing in the things that are proven false. In religion, you just like keep believing in whatever you believe in because you've just believed in it for a while now and so did your parents and that's you just keep going i remember a conversation i had with you man many years ago now i think it was while we were driving to gdc where we were talking about something and you were and you actually took an issue just even with the word faith like outside of religion the idea of I forget what it was but like I think we'd been talking about Rocco's Basilisk. Oh yeah 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 oh, yeah sure. yeah Yudowski. Anyway, um Oh Yodorowski? Oh anyway, I, no Yodorowski is the guy who made the weird dune. Anyway. <laughs> Eliezer Yudkowski's dune. Yudkowski, thank you. Anyway, I think I said something like you have faith in you have faith in his reasoning and he said like no, that's not faith. That's I forget how you described it, but like faith is faith is when you believe it without uh, evidence. Oh, so when you say you, do you mean me or Hallie? Oh, I mean you. This okay, was, this was okay. Jim Twinbeards. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't. I think looking back on it, I did believe that I was like I'm not actually. I don't actually remember what this what the particular. Please don't feel um, like I'm asking you to defend a half remembered conversation that I might yeah. not even be remembered right. Yeah, yeah. Right, I, no, I, I'm, I'm just. I'm hedging because I don't remember. I would make a distinction between like faith as in as in a thing that you believe without having a rationale for it and something you can justify that you can back up or that you have at the very least considered and makes sense to you. I brought it up mostly because I felt like it tied in with what you were just saying about religion right, right. in particular. But I realized midway through I hope it didn't feel like Oh no, like no. a six year old gotcha. It's fine it's fine. I did not feel like that. Uh, the, the, what I was going to get to, though, was religion was still a thing before science was, and back then you would not have redefined it as a, in opposition to science. And it's 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 interesting to me to consider like how would it have been defined back then? How would people think about it? Yeah, and and I personally wouldn't define it as much as opposed to science. Like I I would define that as fundamentalism uh-huh. more as more of like a textual fundamentalism, a belief in a scripture or in a a truth being more true than any other possible following revelation. And it's like, and things like that are things I tend to be very leery of wherever they come from. Well, and a lot of scientists were religious. And in fact, there are more than a few scientists who were clergymen who made, you know, significant contributions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not, I feel like exploring the world from a scientific viewpoint, is not necessarily at odds automatically with a religious viewpoint. Having said that, it does get used as a tool against science often, and then that puts it in an oppositional relationship to science. So, like, 
structures of power and people who want to negate things that are very heavy, heavily and highly evidence-based may use these tools because they are not strictly science-based and have an older history than them, uh, and may say like, well, I don't believe the thing that you're saying because this book over here that must be true says it. But like that to me is just like the language that is written in a dictionary is sort of the, the bones and shells of the language we're speaking is sort of the fossils of the language that we speak now, the evidence <laughs> left behind of it. Dictionaries are the corpse of language. I mean, <laughs> they kind of are. They're the, they're the, they're the chalk outline around language. And hopefully they're like a, a, a skin that gets regularly shed and, and maybe even participates in the creation of it. So it's not a perfect metaphor. But like to me, scripture is useful as a thing to look at, just at the same as the as I'm talking about it as an old fandom, just the same as like looking at the original Star Wars movie is useful for me to understand where the fandom is now. Look, Han shot first. So like, right? Right? Like one of my other proposed topics, uh, and the reason I was fine with it, like merging that out for the other one is how Disney sort of buying the Star Wars franchise was is in my mind basically the same thing as the Roman Empire converting to Christianity because yeah do you want to you want to go into that for a second yeah I do I want to just touch on it for a sec where like it's about this huge massive power in a civilization and culture taking this thing that a lot of people like and making it like part of itself and behave by its rules and putting all of its power behind it in both cases. And they're huh. really useful metaphors for thinking about and talking about each other, for me anyway. I hadn't thought about it in that context. That's an interesting lens to view the whole transition from. Like, including the canon, like the very much like winnowing down of the expanded universe into like the New Testament. Right, like it, I it, totally thought you were going to do like a New Testament, Old Testament thing there. So, <laughs> yep the the Roman bit was an interesting. Yeah, no, it's not an Old Testament, New Testament thing. It's very much a like uh, my favorite, absolute favorite religion class I took in college was a, um, and I've been thinking about it a lot because I've been talking to some people who I was in it with recently. Was a seminar on like the formation was Christianity basically before it was cool <laughs> and just like all like all the like diversity of opinions and like apocrypha and like cool stuff people were talking about and thinking about before it had like real political power behind it to say this is what we believe and think and do they're like talking dogs and like simon magus getting get like brought down to there's like comic book pulpy trashy acts of it's great is that back where they had the thing with the guy that all the kids came out and called him bald and so he asked god to send bears to maul them and god did i mean maybe I don't know that story. That's a great story. Sometimes I'll summarize things amusingly for effect in a way that's technically accurate, but maybe doesn't convey the true meaning of the story. I'm familiar this with this. This one's pretty much unvarnished representation. Like, this is what it's like. Like, dudes walking along a street or on a path, a road, and some kids come out and I think they call him Round Top or something because he's bald. And, yeah. Guy prays. God Send bears mauled. Let me see what the internet say. Bible story bears. Elisha and the two bears. Then he went up to there from Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him, and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. 
When he looked back and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the wood, and they tore up the 42 lads of the number. Twi- of the number. Sorry, and they tore up 42 lads of their number. And oh. he went from there to Mount, Car- Mount Caramel, and then he returned. Oh, wow. This is, this is, yeah, that's in Kings. That's like... That is in Kings. Thousands, maybe, years before uh, the text we're talking about. And there could be fun stuff going on there, but I am not qualified to talk about it. I, I just want to point out, if the the bears killed 42 of them, this guy was surrounded by, like, hundreds of children making fun of his bald head. Kids are mean. They really, he really was, right? Like, this was not just, like, a kid on the side of the road laughing at him. Right. This guy had some serious problems with the youths yeah that sounds like a really i mean that's that sounds like a situation where i would really hope that like the whole the whole society would take like a bigger look at like what's happening here that's just like a there's a lot there's a lot and i guess they did and now we have this bible story but right Mm -hmm. that one and and the story of jesus with the fig tree are kind of the two bible stories that i like to think of for curious (laughs) like they're fun to talk about let's put it that way yeah. Are we ready for another topic? I would love a new topic. So who wants to read Good Bones by Maggie Smith? I'm happy if you read it, but I can also read it. I think I'd prefer if you do it. All right. That's ac- this is actually a- apropos of our previous discussion about education and children. Uh, life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful by Maggie Smith. Yeah, so it's taking an optimistic tone, but I think this poet is a real pessimist. This okay, so this person lives in much worse of a world than I than I do. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about them hiding the truth that they believe from their kids? I mean, you, you gotta break it to them over time. You gotta like I'm, I'm not telling Winston about people throwing stones at birds. Because he's three, yeah. but I was going to ask how this. Uh, I was going to bring up the. <laughs> we have an actual parent among us, so right. I definitely focus on the ways that the world is wonderful for my child. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of having to sell the child, sell the world to the child. Like, no, no, it's great. You should totally interact with it. You should live here. It's great. It's where I keep all my stuff. Yeah, I mean, as I... though, like they might decide that you know eh, that's not for me. And go live somewhere I kind of feel like this author is apologizing for having a kid, like having a kid into this terrible world. I feel mm. like I got the opposite, honestly. I yeah. feel like they're apologizing to the kid that the world is so terrible, but yeah. hey, here it is. Look, there's totally good parts. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of how I yeah. read it. Uh, this really resonates with a lot of the work I do. Um, I said before I do some some Discord modding, for, uh, and mostly on a support group work with uh, trans kids and, and teens. And this feels really resonant with that work, specifically. Not necessarily yeah. the world in general, but, like, working with those kids, I sometimes feel like I am trying to give them reasons to, like, see the world as something that they should stick around in. And it yeah. really does feel like this sometimes. Yeah, I believe that. 
as a sentiment, I think it's a good one. I just, I just keep like, mm-hmm. I think the fifty percent terrible idea, and like the idea that like for every kind stranger, there's one who wants to hurt you. All it takes is for there to be like one in ten thousand people who want to hurt somebody for a lot of people to get hurt and to think that that's everybody. Yeah. Like there are, there are extreme outliers out there. There are always going to be extreme outliers out there. And those are the ones who you think about whenever you think about like, what do I, what do I need to worry about in this world? I mean, by Sturgeon's law, 50% is a low estimate, right? (laughs) That's right. 90% of the world is crap. But I think that, that, that's more of a, like, uh, was Sturgeon an engineer? Is where we're like a, he was a Theodore Sturgeon who wrote a bunch of cool books. Okay, he was a so like Cat's Cradle, Cat's by, by Sturgeon's standard, the world is not an amazing novel, nor ninety percent of it isn't. Anyway, yeah, I want I want to refute each individual stat, but like it's not helpful. This is not what this poem is about. Yeah, it's it's very much about the emotionality of it, and yeah, like it can lead to a a very afraid looking at the world a very pessimistic view of other people and like i think that's not a useful way to look at the world for everyone and yet the poem is about taking a world that you know has sharp edges mm-hmm. and hiding them for all you try to teach someone about the world right like the if you do have that world view how do you live with it yep it is interesting but yeah no i don't like for every bird there is a stone thrown at a bird is obviously it's- not not it's a false. true statement. It is a it's, false statement. Yeah. Like some birds get like a bunch of stones thrown at them to make up for the yeah. ones that get none. Stones jorg. Yeah, this feels this feels as much like someone who has who does struggle with like anxiety and depression looking at the world, or someone who like has a particularly justified like bad view of the world because they've had a bad position in it. Looking at the world yeah. and trying to trying to sell it. Also resonates with my experience of homeownership. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you even said, Jim, that there are things about the world that you're not quite ready to tell your kid about yet. So, yeah. I see this as kind of analogous. And, you know, they may be overstating their their view of the bad things of the world for dramatic or poetic effect, but at the heart of it, it feels like the same action, right? Like, yeah, it's we'll the... break it to him gently that, like, maybe we'll learn about, I don't know, Hiroshima next year. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm definitely trying to present the world's best self to my son, and like, that means that includes the self's best world. Yes. Yeah. I need this kid to be able to grow up and live in the world and be like it's it's super right. important that this this kid be happy to me. Like I really really want to make a happy adult here. As is a reasonable and good impulse of yours. Like that's that's really important. That's that's good parenting, as it turns out. <laughs> anyway, uh, my goal this week was to bring all the most controversial topics I could. Apparently, <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about hair mayo? I would love to talk about hair mayonnaise. <laughs> do I get to do a poem? Do, do you wanna do you wanna do another one real quick? That's fine. I'll do another one real quick. I will note that this is a little bit under protest because I, I also wanted to pick one that was resonant, and so I was going to read Ogden Nash's Dragons Are Too Seldom. But in the interest of time and the fact that apparently Ogden Nash saw a lot of play last time, I will instead switch it up to a much shorter verse, although also by Ogden Nash. <clears throat> the Cow is the title of this piece. I'm ready. <clears throat> The cow is of the bovine ilk, 
One end is moo, the other, milk. This poet was clearly extremely depressed. <laughs> but I he's mean, really trying to sell the reader on the concept of bovines. But yes. here's my thing, here's my thing. And That's bovine not, byproducts. The milk is like the middle. I, I don't understand. <laughs> it comes out of an end. <laughs> Just not an end perpendicular to the moo end. Well, but it, it says the other. It implies the existence of only two ends of this cow. I suppose it does. Yeah, I guess it's, po- it's totally possible Ogden Nash has never seen a cow. Or maybe just the cows he saw only had two ends, and one of them was the one that milk came out of. Or maybe he's talking about the conceptual cow. Like, the cow as seen by us that only produces moose and milk. Well, if you think about a cow, I mean, that's a good point, too, right? Like, what are the facts you know? Like, what are the facts that uh, your kid knows about cows, Uh uh, Jim, for example? Like, I bet one of them is that they go moo, and one of them is that they give milk. It seems likely. I haven't quizzed him about cows recently. But just thinking about cows from, like, a kind of, I don't know, an abstract level, you can kind of think of them as a machine that goes around taking things in, taking in organic matter from the moo end, and then outputting milk from another end. Now, it also outputs other things from yet a third end, but we can ignore that in the interests of, I don't know, good taste or civility or something. A cow is a three-ended beast. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Worry the least. Did it. We did it. <laughs> Just filled it with da's. The nice thing about da's, it rhymes with itself. That's right. That's four poems today. <laughs> well, we're overachievers. Oh, right. All right, now I want to hear about hair mayo. So I have given up on commercial hair products. I have tried all of them, and my... One, I have curly hair, and curly hair is a giant pain in the ass to deal with. It does terrible things if you let it go long. This is something that I only discovered recently because I always kept my hair super short. Uh, Only in the past five years have I discovered, one, that I have curly hair, and two... That it requires a lot of work to keep your long curly hair in presentable, reasonable condition. Yeah. And as it turns out, uh, often this involves involves buying products. And as it turns out, conditioner ends up being important, which was not something I really knew before. So here's an interesting thing. Conditioner, in addition to moisturizing your hair, uh, if you just shampoo your hair, your hair will repel itself magnetically or electrically rather that is where your hair gets frizzy is because your hair is like self-repulsive and it like poofs out because it is electromagnetically repulsed from itself and conditioner fixes that which is a new thing i learned which i'm excited about does it fix it by the because it moisturizes it and the moisture does it or there's some other It, it uh it i think strips the the free radicals out but i'm not sure like a government. Yes, yes. Much like a government. It strips the free radicals out. It changes the, the charge of the hair. Uh, and it also moisturizes. The moisturizing may or may not be part of that. That's not something I've looked into the chemistry of. Anyway, the conditioner I was using started to make my head allergic because I'm apparently allergic to everything, uh, which is annoying. But uh, so it goes. So Um, I started using, I think I looked around for treatments. Somebody said apple cider vinegar. I started using apple cider vinegar. It also made my hair look good. Uh, And at this point, I was like, okay, cool. 
Now I can just basically use vinegar as shampoo. The problem is that my hair was then getting too dry and it was like getting stringy and harder to work with and harder to comb. So I was like, okay, um, I guess I need to add some oil in there to moisturize it. So at this point, I am now mixing vinegar and oil. That's like two thirds of mayonnaise. That's two thirds of mayonnaise. That's two thirds of mayonnaise. (laughs) And the thing is, I knew that some people do add eggs to their hair to add protein to help like the texture of hair and help give it some shine long term and help give it like some health long term. Uh, So I did the damn thing. And I looked this up and I discovered that yes, yes, people regularly use like egg and make a hair mask out of like egg and uh, oil. And I'd made mayonnaise before, so I just decided to take my blender and blend an egg in there with some mustard because that helps it emulsify. (laughs) And it's also a good antiseptic and that, you know, because my head is already allergic to everything and itchy, I figured that it would kill any bad bacteria in there. And uh, I put in some turmeric because that helps with inflammation. And I blended it up and I made hair mayonnaise by adding olive oil and um, coconut oil. And so now my primary form of hair care is making mayonnaise that I put on my head. You kept coming up with ingredients that sound like you just put it in for flavor. And then you had a justification for each one of them. But I'm still <laughs> suspicious. I feel like the next step is going to be like, and then I started putting lettuce on my head because the moisture of the lettuce really helps moisturize the hair. And, uh, bacon wraps actually <laughs> act as nature's curlers, as well as providing oil that the hair absorbs that provides fuller body. And I basically what I'm saying is I feel like you're slowly building up to making a head sandwich. I, I this is you are not the only person who thinks this. My wife also thinks this. Um, also, the the most recent version of it I made, I do keep in the fridge. Um, and it does make my head smell a little like a sandwich, and I'm going to drop the mustard next time, I think. <laughs> Real question is, have you ever used your hair mayonnaise in a non-hair way? I have not. This is something I started recently, like a week ago. Uh, I have tasted it, but I have not used it as a spread on a sandwich. I mean, is your hair delicious now? Asking the real question. It's a little too bitter and not salty enough. Okay, all right. Okay, but what if it had bacon and lettuce on top also, and maybe some tomatoes for moisture? I don't know. What would the tomatoes do? I'm running out of hair goals. Yeah, I don't know how I could justify tomatoes. Tomatoes for garnish. Tomatoes for garnish. I did think about adding in some berries for color. Oh. The the thing You're is You're not doing a whole lot to dispel my sa- head sandwich theories. No, no. I um I I I admit once I realized I was making hair mayonnaise, I kind of leaned into it. Um <laughs> I uh yeah, and I do smell a little like a sandwich. I am going to back off it. Back off the hair mayonnaise. I probably will stop using egg and start using like an aquafaba instead so that it's a little more shelf stable, but aquafaba is its own whole fucking thing. I don't even know what an aquafaba is. Aquafaba is bean juice. (laughs) I think it's Latin for bean water. Uh, It is the stuff left over in a can of beans after you take the beans out. Sure, that sounds like something I'd look at and say, I need that on my head. It's in like the past decade started to be like a really popular vegan egg replacer in things like mayonnaise and meringues. Would you rather put like bean water or egg in your hair? I feel like there's an assumption being made here that maybe doesn't entirely fit about things. Although it is interesting, I, I had to say, I was I was chuckling a little when you were talking at the beginning about how 
you discovered that you had curly hair and that it's a pain because I don't think either of you would necessarily know this because, you know, COVID, so I haven't seen either of you in person in quite a while. Several years on either case, but when COVID started and it got hard to do barbershop visits and whatnot, mm-hmm. I figured, you know, this seems like as good a time as any to try growing my hair out, which I've never actually done, because A, I can justify it with the barbershops thing, and B, it's not like I have to interact with people very much anyway, so if I look bizarre, who cares? Yep, yep. Like, who cares more than normal, Lane? You know, I went through the whole... Super annoying, like, it's not long enough to do anything with, oh, yes. but it's still long enough to get in my eyes phase, which of yep. course was nightmarish. It is. As it is. And reached the comparatively nicer fields on the far side of that where I could at least gather it up into a ponytail. And in the process, I discovered that A, I have fine straight hair like my mum, and B, it's super annoying because you can't gather it. It slips out of any constraint. Uh, my hair is huh. Houdini. Hairdini. I don't know. Wow. And so anyway, I was chuckling because I thought sometimes, wow, I bet this would be easier if I had curly hair. And so you're like, yeah, I discovered I have curly hair. It's horrible. I can't do things with it. And so I'm wondering, maybe <laughs> it's just that hair is just hair- an innately untamable beast. Oh, don't get me... It- I can do stuff with... I love that I can do stuff with my hair. I It looks good now that I've figured out how to do it. But you're willing to manage it. It's just... It's a lot more work than I was prepared to put into my hair. I'll admit I never considered going the condiment route. Demonstrates a bit more dedication than I've been able to muster. The, the, or mustard. Mustard. And that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. <laughs> <laughs> Hallie, this is well, something... your turn, Jim. Got any hair stories for us? You're the one that had multiple beards. <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> you didn't hear me end the show. I just ended the show. <laughs> did you really, though? Yeah, I did. I said, and that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Right, and I was, <laughs> I was trying to time it, like, right after the muster mustard pun. That would have been pretty great. I guess you can probably make it work. I'm with- hoping Esper can do it in editing. Although this conversation might itself be funnier. Um, well, that's... I mean... Uh, Hallie, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me uh, at Hallie underscore 9000, which is a locked account at the moment because I don't want to go through and curate my tweets and I'm not really on Twitter anymore. But you can also probably find me at uh, House Rules Cast. Sounds good. And Chris, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? As an occasional guest on Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. That is an excellent place to find almost every Topic Lords guest. It's really convenient that way. Uh, thanks so much for being on. <laughs> thanks for having us. Thank it was you. a pleasure as always. Yep, it was. I'm not really interested in those guests that, you know, you can't find on Topic <laughs> yeah. Lords. Yeah, they're jerks. Yeah, it's kind of a litmus test for the guests that I care about. That's fair. Any Topic Lord guests that cannot be found on Topic Lords, meh. Meh. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!